It's uh, my great pleasure to introduce to you our <clears throat> guest preacher this morning. Dr. Kelly Capick is professor of theological studies at Covenant College, where he has taught now for 20 years with a PhD in systematic and historical theology from King's College, University of London. Dr. Capick has written or edited 15 books, including the recent volume, Embodied Hope, A Theological Meditation on Pain and Suffering, which, by the way, won the Christianity Today Book of the Year Award, the Area of Theology and Ethics, and World Magazine Shortlist Award for Accessible Theology Book of the Year. Most recently completed two volumes with the economist and friend of this church, Brian Fickert, called Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream, and a Field Guide to Becoming Whole, Principles for Poverty Alleviation Ministries. 2014, Dr. Capig received a Templeton grant to be part of the Center for Christian Thought, studying the topic of psychology and spiritual formation. Currently, he serves as part of the core research teams for the Templeton-funded studies called Project Amazing Grace and Christian meaning making suffering and the flourishing life. We're delighted to have you here. Dr. Kavik, come and share the gospel with us. We enjoy having you here. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Um, I've been with some of you uh, yesterday and then this morning, and uh, it has been good for my heart uh, to be with brothers and sisters here. I've heard of your church in the past, and it's actually a joy, um, and, it, and it's been good, you know, <laughs> you never, like, I've heard of you, like, mm, that's not good, but, <laughs> but really, it's, it's been positive, so, um, I would like to read to you from Psalm 22, it's not a short psalm, but I want us to hear the whole thing, and then we will jump in, Psalm 22, hear the reading of God's word. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you don't answer. By night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you, our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not disappointed. But I'm a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by men, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you've been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. 
You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count on all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. Oh, my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before, who, before those who fear you, I will, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Father, we commit this time to you and ask that you would use these words to bring nourishment to our hearts and souls. That you would do something that no speaker, no passion, no study can do. Only your spirit can do. That you would make your presence known and felt that you would forgive and heal and strengthen and comfort. We ask what we cannot do on our own, but we ask with confidence. For the King reigns and his spirit dwells among us. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Well, <clears throat> I, I know it's weird to start by telling you something like this since we don't know each other well, but I have to tell you that my dad, my father, has a problem. <laughs> and uh, he's still alive. He's uh, still uh, bouncing around in his 80s. And he has a problem, and here's his problem. He only knows the first line to all songs. And he loves to sing. So it's an issue because when my dad is at home washing the dishes or working around the house, you can be sure of two things. He will be singing, and he will just be singing the first line of a song over and over again. 
And just to give you a taste of this, here, here is some of the repertoire I grew up with. And some of you who are older, this will make more sense to you than others. But I remember a lot of born free, free as can be. But that's all he knew, that line, over and over again. Another one, some of you will know, besame cuando, besame mucho. And one that I grew to love, jumping around, going to the chapel and I'm going to get married. Over and over. That's it. That's, I'm, not, I'm not cutting it off to be short. That's all. Now, you can imagine, it doesn't take long for that to just start to drive my mother and any sane person crazy, right? This, this limited repertoire will kill you. Now, here's another confession. Sadly, this is a gene that was passed from my father to me. <laughs> and you should pray for Tabitha and my mother. And part of the reason it drives them legitimately crazy is because when you, when you know the first line of a song, you don't know the song. You only know the first line. And so no matter how much my dad and I dance around the kitchen and the song loses its meaning, because we never get past the first line. And today I want to talk about singing. Because we're going to look at Psalm 22 together. This is a song. It's a psalm, which is a song. It is meant to be sung. It is meant to be re remembered. It's meant to be formative in the lives of those who sang it. So we're going to concentrate on two ideas this morning. First, that our pain is real. Our pain is real. But then secondly, we'll spend more time on the fact that we can sing. Our pain is real, but we can sing. Let's begin with the first. Our pain is real. This, this psalm begins with some of the most penetrating words you'll find in literature. But maybe because we're familiar with them, they lose something. So I want you to see if you can do this with me. I'm going to read them again, but try and imagine you've never heard them before. Try and imagine you've never heard this before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can those words be included in Holy Scripture? Have you ever thought about that? Right? Shouldn't the psalmist begin, isn't this the, what it's supposed to say? My God, my God, thank you for never forsaking me. Isn't that what it's supposed to be? Right? If you're, in a, if, you're, if you're praying with some other people and someone prays, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After, later you might pull that person aside and say, hey, God doesn't forsake you. Rather than realizing they're quoting Holy Scripture. What, is this, what does this mean? Right? As people face the tragedies of life, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It sounds to many of us more like weak spirituality rather than the words of holy writ. But you see, Psalm 22 begins with what we call a lament. It's a lament. It's a song of grief. It's asking the great questions of how and why. And Psalm 22 begins with the cry of lament. It begins deep in the soul, right? You've had laments where these are groans. These are groans that words are only meant to give an approximation to what one is feeling. 
Why am I forsaken by God? Why, why does God seem so distant? Why does he seem so absent when I call on him? I constantly cry out to God. I, I don't hear anything in return. And in this state, the psalmist says in verse 2, I can find no rest. But I also want you to notice something strange about this statement. There's an inner tension built into it. Because this is not the psalmist just saying he feels forsaken by the world. He doesn't just feel forsaken by some abstract force, right? This is a feeling of personal forsakenness from his God. My God. Not a foreign deity. This is the God I've trusted. Now, many scholars argue, and I would agree with this, it's, this psalm is probably an exilic psalm, which means it's a psalm, it's a song that was written while Israel is out of the promised land. Right? They're not in the promised land. They're not enjoying the benefits of being near the temple. And what happens when you find yourself in exile? When you're in exile, you are prone to feel very distant from the God of Israel. Have you ever had times in your life when you cry out to God, but if you're honest, you cry out to God and you feel like the prayers never get past the ceiling. They never get out of the room. Has your situation made you feel like you're in some kind of exile, that you've been cast away, that you're far away from God's presence? Let me, let me ask you a different question that might be helpful, although for some painful. Does silence scare you? Does silence scare you? Does it frighten you to be alone with God? I think this happens, it's revealed. Sometimes, you know, we pray and we pray. We go, we go in and pray real quick and get out because we're scared to death that if we slow down when we're praying, we might find out God's not actually there. Or even worse, we'll find out he doesn't care or he's cruel. Does the silence scare you? The psalmist doesn't deny these struggles, but wrestles through them. He feels abandoned himself, but then he reminds himself of God's faithfulness to his people. Surely God's been faithful in the past. He won't abandon me now. I remember years ago um, in our house, there was like a tornado or whatever, and um, there were all kinds of issues. But in our basement, it's not like a finished basement or anything, but there's our HVAC unit and things down there. And as the night went on and there were these terrible floods, water started coming into my basement. And it kept rising and rising up to the electrical unit. And all night, three in the morning, I'm down there with a sump pump, just kind of praying and feeling like the rain is never going to stop. Have you ever had those things in your life? Or the rain or the pain in your life, you feel like it's never going to stop? As trifling as my example is, this psalm tells us that the rain, that the pain, though it is real, is not the end of the story. God does not allow it to be the end of the story. So I want to talk about the fact that we can sing. We can sing. You see, at this point, even the way I've framed it, 
it's easy for us to be tempted to think that we are the psalmist, right? We put ourselves directly in the place of the psalmist. We can recite these words, I have felt forsaken, those kind of things, I can relate. And to be honest, that's good. You can and should, you're allowed to relate to the psalmist. But let me help you see something. Because if, if the whole point of Psalm 22 is simply that you and I can relate to it, and nothing more than that, then we miss the beautiful significance of it. Now, we're going to have to do some work for the rest of this sermon. Sorry, I'm a college professor. I can't help it. So you're going to have to do some thinking. But I promise the rewards are worth it. All right? So hang with me. The first thing, and many of you know this, but the Bible didn't just kind of drop out of heaven with chapters and verses, right? You know that. So those chapters and verses are added later. And so sometimes you'll find in the New Testament, someone's quoting from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, they're not just, it's not just haphazard proof texting. It is a way, because they don't have chapters and verses, not just to highlight a verse, but to take you back to remind you of a portion of Scripture. It's a way of saying, hey, check out this chapter, check out these, this section. And when you go back, that is the context for what's going on. So with that in mind, you guys are clever. Have you ever heard these words, the beginning words of Psalm 22 before? Jesus on the cross? In Matthew 27 and Mark 15, Jesus is on the cross, and on the cross we hear him crying out in a loud voice in his native Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Here Jesus is on the cross, and he is heard to cry the cry of lament. I have to tell you something beautiful that happened this, just about 10 minutes ago. As I was reading Psalm 22, reading through it, halfway through it, a little voice in here said, It's Jesus. Oh, it made me happy. That's what we're going to see. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is what we read in Matthew and Mark. But in Luke's gospel, in Luke 23, do you know that the last recorded words of Jesus on the cross are these words? Into your hands I commit my spirit. You know those? You know how that? Here's what's interesting. Those words, into your hands I commit my spirit, that is from Psalm 31 verse 5. And from that, the ancient church, and there's good reason to believe, the idea was Jesus seems to be praying, seems to be singing, seems to be living within this portion of the Psalter. Psalm 22, 1 to Psalm. It's his comfort, it's his strength. So, so what's going on here? What I want us to understand is that when we read that Jesus cries these words on the cross, more is simply being said than a painful cry. Now, you have to hear what I'm saying because I don't want to misunderstand. More is, is happening than a cry of dereliction, but not less. More than lament, but not less than lament. The more does not trivialize the lament. 
Jesus really is feeling a sense of abandonment, of loneliness, of despair. He's here on the cross, and he's facing the reality of sin, of exile, of curse, and he faces it head on. And he really means it when he says, he's not, it's not a play acting. He's not like, oh, my God. My. He really means it when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, remember, though, this is a song. It's a song the Jews would know. They would have met, some, of, some of you, as we were singing earlier, didn't even have to look at your hymnals because you knew all the words. If you go to a, a funeral, not just in the South, but the South would be an example, I've, in this kind of setting where I've been, where at one point as the body is lowered into the grave, and family and friends are gathered around, and there is just sniffles and tears and ache. And in that silence, you hear one voice. Amazing grace. And what happens when that happens? Like what follows? Everyone else starts to sing. They've been invited into the song. And slowly everyone around that grave is singing amazing grace, to sing a song of hope in the midst of the pain. Arthur Miller, in his play, The Crucible, at the very end, there's the hanging of this old faithful woman and a husband and a wife, and this powerful last scene in the movie version. I don't remember reading it, but whatever. <laughs> and the powerful, but in the movie version, in the last scene where they're the, the three are lined up and the camera is kind of wide angle and you can see all three of them and a noose is put around each of their heads and their necks and the camera begins and it slowly starts to move in and as it starts to move in the, the woman, the older woman in her frail, quiet voice starts to pray the Lord's Prayer Our Father who art in heaven and as soon as she begins to say the Lord's Prayer the other two slowly join in but as the camera gets tighter all of a sudden there's only two that you can see and you hear Thud! and one less voice and the two remaining voices get louder and more defiant until only one voice where it's almost at a scream your kingdom come your will be done on earth in the midst of the great threat comes courage in a song, a song that can be transformed because of the situation in which it is sung. So Psalm 22 is fascinating because in this psalm, the early church fathers often called this the fifth gospel. This is why as we were reading it, you, you hear things and you're like, gosh, isn't that in the gospels? It's the fifth gospel, they would say. But here's the question for us this morning. How is this psalm, Psalm 22, how is this psalm, this song, transformed? How is it transformed? And the answer is as simple as it is earth-shattering. The psalm is transformed because of the one who sings it. Because of the one who sings it. You see, Jesus identifies himself as the forsaken one. 
He identifies himself as the one who faced exile, who cries out to God and has not found rest. He is the one who suffers as a worm. Who is the one, he is the one who faced the scorn of men. He is the one who is truly incarnated, enfleshed, who's taken to himself the reality of Psalm 22. But Jesus wants us to sing the whole psalm. Because if you know the whole song, it doesn't end in lament. It ends in hope. You see, Jesus trusts God, but there is a difference from Jesus and the original psalmist, right? Jesus trusts the Father not to rescue him from death, like the original psalmist, not to be delivered from death, but Jesus trusts the Father to deliver him through death. He's on the cross. Jesus faces the great black hole of hell and he doesn't turn to the side but as this warrior he enters into the very darkness of death into evil into sin there is a reason if you're going to find the comfort of psalm 22 or to psalm 23 of the one who's in the shadows of the valley of death with you you need psalm 22 the one who knows your forsakenness is the one who offers you comfort in the darkness Jesus enters our forsakenness. Now, I'm a theologian, and it's one of those things that when people hear that, they have, well, there's various reactions. I was just mentioning, I thought of this earlier when I was talking to the earlier congregation. You know, sometimes say, hey, what do you do? And I say, I'm a theologian. And I do, I do remember this one woman said to me, oh, there are nice rocks in Georgia, aren't there? <laughs> and I said, yes, there are. And we moved on, right? <laughs> But sometimes when people hear I'm a theologian, that just ends the conversation. It's nice. But others, that means, boom, all the questions come out. And they're hard. But they get tired of my answers before very long because my answer's the same. It's Jesus. But I don't mean Jesus in any trivial, cliche, bumper sticker way. The questions are real. If God is sovereign, if he really cares, why did 9-11 happen? If God is sovereign, if God is good, why the collapse of the building in Florida and the deaths? If God cares, why did he allow me, why did he allow my parents to hurt me so bad? Why does he allow me to get bullied? Why does he allow all of this pain in my life. If God is not distant and unconcerned, why do I feel so afraid and condemned and alone? Beloved, here's the strangeness of God. Do you know how God answers those very real and honest and fair questions? He answers those questions through the power of weakness. God in Christ does not stand off in some cosmic distance, right? God's not scratching his head like, gosh, why are these humans all right? He doesn't just kind of from heaven throw some bottle with a note in it that we're supposed to open up and read and says, you know, don't worry, be happy. It's not, that's not the good news. It doesn't, it's not a note that says, you know, stop complaining. Do you know how God deals with your and I, our forsakenness? You know how he deals with our exile? Do you know how he deals with our sin? Are you ready for this? He deals with it by assuming it. 
He takes it to himself. The father, out of his love, sends the son. The son comes in humility, in weakness, and in pain. And on the cross, Christ faces the chaos of the world, and he faces it straight on. Jesus, who's truly God and truly man, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, remember how I told you in the ancient text there's no chapter and verse. So when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, the Jewish listeners, as, as you've been anticipating, they were supposed to, in their minds, in their hearts, and with the words, start to recite the song. We don't have time to unpack the whole psalm, but I want to remind you how the psalm ends and the hope that is in it. Because it ends in victory. Let me read you a few statements. Verse 26. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. But now watch. Did you notice how it actually ends? This is the last verse. Posterity shall serve him. Who? Messiah. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Are you ready? That he has done it. Does that sound vaguely familiar? He has done it. In John's gospel, he records Jesus' closing words. It is finished. It is finished, do you see? Where the original psalmist wrote of a lament and, and, and he prays and he hopes, Jesus embodies the lament. He embodies the lament, he prays the prayer, and he becomes the hope. Now, one more thing, because it's just too cool not to let you know. One more thing. The author of Hebrews also explicitly draws from this psalm, Psalm 22. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, don't get lost in all the numbers, but in Hebrews chapter 2, he quotes Psalm 22, verse 22. Here's, here's the quote in Hebrews, which is right from Psalm 22, he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. But here's what's remarkable that the author of Hebrews does. He attributes those words which come from Psalm 22 to the mouth of Jesus. To the mouth of Jesus. Jesus, who is not ashamed to call us sisters and brothers. Don't miss the imagery that the author of Hebrews wants us to see. Our brother Jesus sings in the midst of the congregation. He is the singing Savior. He is the center of our congregation. He sings the praise of the Father. Do you know, do you know that you and I worship Christ? We do. We should. It is what is good and right. But do you know that as the mediator, not only do we worship Christ, but in a mysterious way, he is also the lead worshiper. He leads the songs. 
Jesus has been exiled so we are not. Jesus has been forsaken so that we might be welcomed. Jesus doesn't stand off. God doesn't stand off in a distance, but he enters in through the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we sing together as a congregation, sometime when no one's looking, I want you to listen. Close your eyes. Because what the author of Hebrews tells us in light of Psalm 22 is that if you're like me, you can't sing well. I'm out of key. And this is an impressive church, but it's not always impressive church. It's not always impressive situations. You're like, I ha does God, like these are, and the author of Hebrews says, no, 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 listen. The Savior singing. Right? I love when talented singers sing because they provide an umbrella for me. And so they cover my lameness. And it, I like it when it's loud because then I can sing more loud and I'm not nervous. But beloved, we have cover and it's Christ. He sings the praises. So with our imperfect motives and our imperfect lives, with our sin and suffering, he sings and we enter into his song. Is this not the fulfillment of the biblical promise that God will inhabit the praises of his people? Let me close with this. Many of you will probably know this story because there's been folk songs and there's been multiple songs written about it. There's been documentary and even kind of a, a, a movie. But during World War I, there was this large field, and if any of you know about World War I, you have horrendous trench warfare, incredibly bloody and violent. And in this field, you had the Germans entrenched on one side and the English on the other. And as Christmas Eve rolled in, there was fog coming in, and the shooting stopped. But as Christmas morning came, the fog was continuing to roll through. And in that quiet Christmas morning, in this bloody area, one of the soldiers began to sing Silent Night. And you don't have to speak German to recognize the tune. And apparently, strangely, slowly, other soldiers on both sides began to sing. And then we know this happened. Eventually, they started coming out of the trenches. And they met one another in the middle. There was apparently a bit of soccer that was played. They exchanged trinkets as Christmas gifts. They shared meal and drink. And then at the end of the day, you know what happened? They went back to their sides. And then in the coming weeks, the war continued. And the bloodshed continued. But what if it wasn't just the common soldiers who came out of the trenches? But what if it was the leaders of those countries who came out and sang together? Beloved, Jesus is the great king. He is the one who has come and who has sung the song. He has sung the song of lament so that we can sing the song of hope. We sing because he sings. That's why we need to know more than the first line of a song. We need to know how the song ends because in the end, it is our hope 
Some of you know from Zephaniah 3.17. This cra- it sounds too sentimental. It sounds too good to be true. It's not, but it describes God singing over us. God rejoices over us with his singing. Do you and I have the courage, and I think it takes courage, to believe God is that gracious and kind? to believe he is that loving and that he can take our laments, our hurts, our questions, our frustrations, the pain, and he comforts us with his presence and with his song. Not asking you to deny the pain, but answering it with his presence and with his compassion and love. Please pray with me. Our God, we believe. Help us to believe. The words come from our mouths easily that we say that you are love and you are loving. But far too often we find ourselves hearing the voices of condemnation, the fear of silence, the ache of a broken world and broken bodies. Help us not to think of you as a cruel, mad scientist, but to see that you are a loving Father who will make all things new. And you will make all things right. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is our sympathetic high priest, but not simply the one who understands, but the victorious one who rose and ascended and even now lives forever and that we will be with him. Give us faith, hope, confidence, and love in the name of him who reigns. Amen.